0: When somebody is larger than life, doesn't it seem kind of weird when they die in an unexpected way? Now, I'm not trying to be morbid here, but it's interesting to see how some iconic people wrapped up. I'm Patty Steele. The Big Exit, next on The Backstory. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Well, if we're being honest, we all have stuff in our lives that drive us crazy. Maybe it's a job, a difficult relationship, or love interest, or honestly, it can just be the state of this crazy world we live in. For me, it's all three of those things at times. A lot of times, it's not a big deal, but in the moment, it sure feels like it is, right? So how do you come to terms with those stressors and not let the negativity weigh you down? For me, therapy has always been a haven, where I can open up, talk about what's eating at me, and trust that this person will be honest, understanding, and discreet. Therapy isn't just for folks who've had major trauma. It's for you and me, so we can be at peace and become the best version of ourselves. When I connected with a terrific therapist at BetterHelp, she asked some on-point questions, and I actually heard myself working through some of the issues I'd kept bottled up. What a relief.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
0: We're back with the backstory. All right, it's easy to think that people who are historic icons or famous villains somehow live beyond a normal lifespan, right? Now, the ones who come to a dramatic end, like JFK, Abe Lincoln, Marie Antoinette, Bonnie and Clyde, are at one end of the spectrum. But there are those who've made the great exit in much more unexpected ways. Take George Washington. He finished his final term as president in 1797, headed back for retirement to his home in Virginia, Mount Vernon. He loved riding around on horseback. His property included about 8,000 acres, so there was a lot of riding to do. In mid-December of 1799, he was inspecting fences and was out for most of the day in an ice storm. The next day, despite a sore throat, he did more outdoor work in a heavy snowstorm. Well, by evening his chest was congested, by three o'clock the next morning he was struggling to breathe, and he had an aide who worked on the estate remove a pint of his blood. That was a common treatment in those days if you were sick. Then three doctors arrived. They not only gave him meds including a mercury compound to help him purge, aka vomit, they put these things called blister packs on him thinking that that would draw inflammation there and away from his throat and then they also drained him of more blood. In all, they removed as much as seven pints of blood, somewhere around 50% of the blood in George's body. Fighting the infection in his throat with half his blood gone was pretty much impossible, and he died late that evening. Now, in a sidebar, a fourth doctor arrived a few days after George had died, and he proposed attempting to bring him back to life by performing a tracheotomy on his throat and also replenishing his blood supply by using lamb's blood. The other doctors said, no, that's not going to happen. And that was that. Now, here's a guy who just didn't want to make the big exit. They call him the Mad Monk. He's Grigory Rasputin. He was a Russian peasant who became a big shot with the Russian nobility at the beginning of the 1900s. He claimed to be a mystic and said he could heal the sick. Well, turns out he somehow did manage to help Nicholas and Alexandra, the emperor and empress of Russia, whose two-year-old son and heir to the throne, Alexei, had hemophilia. A little boy had developed internal bleeding that would not stop, and Alexandra begged Rasputin to pray for him. He promised her that her son would not die, and told her to keep doctors away from the little one. Inexplicably, Alexei recovered quickly, and the royals relied on him for guidance for the rest of his life. Now, the problem is, even with the support of the imperial family, Rasputin had haters among the nobility. So by 1916, they wanted him out. A bunch of them banded together to do him in. But it wasn't an easy job. He was invited to one of their palaces, where they first gave him tea and cakes, laced with cyanide. But he had no reaction to it. Then they gave him wine also laced with cyanide. He drank that, but again, no reaction. What's next? They shot him in the chest, and thinking he was finally dead, they left the palace for an hour or so. When one of them came back, Rasputin leapt up and attacked him. He chased his would-be killer upstairs to the courtyard where the mad monk was shot in the head and finally collapsed dead. Not content, his killers then threw him off a bridge into a river. He did not come back from that. Another strange pair of deaths was that of the first really publicized conjoined twins. In fact, Chang and Ang were the reason conjoined twins were called Siamese twins for over a century since the pair grew up in Bangkok, Siam, now called Thailand. Chang and Ang were twins born around 1811 who were joined at the chest. After a relatively normal childhood, despite being conjoined, they decided to capitalize on their situation so they toured the world and they became hugely popular. They made a lot of money and finally settled down in North Carolina, of all places, and married local women. Chang had 10 children, Ang had 11. To replenish their bank accounts, they toured again, even working with P.T. Barnum for a short time. Finally, in their late 50s, Chang began to have health problems, including having a stroke. Then in 1874, he caught bronchitis, he finally died, and this had always been Eng's biggest fear. He claimed he had to die too, even though he wasn't sick. Despite being completely healthy, within two hours of his brother's death, Eng collapsed and died as well. They were 62 years old. An autopsy stated that Chang had died of a cerebral blood clot, while Eng had simply died of fright. And doctors agreed there would have been no way to separate them, at least back in those days. And finally there's Isadora Duncan. She's considered the mother of modern dance. Born in San Francisco, she had moved to New York City by the time she was 18 in 1896 to study dance. But she was a free spirit and didn't like the restrictions of old-school ballet. So by the time she was 20, she had moved to London. She became a huge star all over Europe, dancing barefoot in flowing Greek tunics and scarves. She was photographed constantly by famous photographers, and artists did spectacular modernist paintings of her. In Paris, wearing a thin, flowing Greek gown, she danced barefoot on tables at a party for three hundred people, where they downed nine hundred bottles of champagne. Isadora lived a freeform life. She had. Three kids with three men, none of whom she married, although she was briefly married to another man who was 20 years younger than she. And she had a ton of lovers, most of them also decades younger, too. She lived, performed, and taught, moving constantly between New York, Russia, and Europe. Finally, it's 1927. Isadora, now 50, staying with friends on the French Riviera in Nice. She hooks up with 27-year-old race car driver Benoit Falcetto. It is a beautiful autumn day, and she climbs into Falcetto's exotic convertible. Her friend hands her a cape and a hand-painted silk scarf to keep warm. But Isadora just takes the scarf, throws it around her neck, and calls out, Adieu, mes amis. I am off to glory although another friend claims that what she actually said was, "'I'm off to love.'" Now, that's really dramatic, but not nearly as dramatic as what happened next. As they sped off, that long silk scarf, draped around her neck, flew back, and wrapped around the open spokes of the wheel as well as the axle of the car. The New York Times said in Isadora's obituary, "'Miss Duncan met a tragic death in Nice on the Riviera.'" According to dispatches from France, She was hurled in an extraordinary manner from an open automobile in which she was riding and instantly killed by the force of her fall to the stone pavement. She died of strangulation and a broken neck. Now, at the end of the day, all of these people changed the way we view the world. And maybe now, even the way we view the big exit. I'd like to thank David Katz and Steve Kingston for help with these stories and remind you that if you have a story you'd like me to take a deeper dive into and share, you can direct message me on Instagram at realpattysteel Steele or on Facebook at Patty Steele. I'm Patty Steele. The Backstory is a production of iHeartMedia, Premier Networks, the Elvis Duran Group, and Steel Trap Productions. Our producer is Doug Fraser. Our writer, Jake Kushner. We have new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Feel free to reach out to me with comments and even story suggestions on Instagram at Real Patty Steele and on Facebook at Patty Steele. Thanks for listening to The Backstory with Patty Steele, the pieces of history you didn't know you needed to know. dot com. Right rug flooring.